This podcast is brought to you by Trend. Trend is a micro-influencer marketing platform that helps connect brands with influencers. Learn more, join our network, or start an influencer campaign at trend.io. Welcome back to the DTC pod, everybody. I'm your host, Jay, and I'm joined with the CEO of Trend, Ramon, and we have a very special guest with us, Connor Lewis, who is the founder of Fort that produces magnetic pillows for the usage of building pillow forts for kids. Connor, you got an awesome product over here. Really excited to be talking about it and talking about your Kickstarter campaign um, that you've raised over two and a half million dollars for, which is pretty crazy. But before we dive into all the fun stuff over here, you kind of want to give a quick little intro about yourself and tell us a little bit about more about Fort in your own words. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. So Fort is basically what you described. I made um, super souped up couch cushions with magnets so everything could be connected. And so kids could basically build on their own, their own structures, anything they could imagine. Very much so inspired by what you do growing up. So basically, the idea came, I lost my job in April, I was working in corporate marketing. And my wife was pregnant. I had a two year old daughter, and I didn't really know what to do with my life. So I took my severance money, I sold my car, actually. And I had this note in my Evernote in my phone that said magnetic pillow fort, you know, when you're like thinking of startup ideas. And it was one of the dumber things that I had thought of. And I just, for some reason, it struck me that I could do that. I had seen the explosion of this category in the kids direct to consumer space, specifically, you know, people doing millions of dollars. In fact, I think in 2019, the ink biggest manufacturer was a kid's like couch. And so I had seen all these things. I kind of was looking at the market and I saw like, okay, there could actually be potential for a product like this. And so I basically jumped in head first and using the money I got from selling my car and everything, I started Fort. And about 10 months later, here we are just past almost 2.6 million on Kickstarter. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Congrats. That's super awesome. So Talk to us a little bit about from the product idea to actually building the product. So you had the idea starting to fester like in April. When did you actually like create the first, like the prototype, the MVP of it? Yeah, so I dove straight in. I knew I wanted to be really lean from the beginning. I knew that I wanted to be direct to consumer. I was really interested in e-com and I saw a ton of potential on Shopify and just like kind of loved that lifestyle. By being super lean, I was like, I want to outsource the product development. I want to do as much as I can myself. And so I went straight to Upwork and a bunch of different outsourcing, like finding contractor websites. And I had studied art in school. So actually, I had a pretty strong background in visual design and things like that. And so it wasn't hard for me to like sketch up what I was dreaming and, you know, do a little research on magnets and everything. So around July and August of 2020, I did all the product development and then started sourcing. And that was probably the biggest challenge for me. You know, product design was fairly easy in retrospect, but in direct-to-consumer, when you are sourcing, it can be a crapshoot. And so you send out 50 or 100 messages, you know, to people in India, to people in Vietnam, to people in China. I knew I wanted to go overseas, mostly because of cost. And it did take me a while to figure that out. It got whittled down pretty quickly. So basically by September, 2020, in about the span of three months, I had an MVP at my door. Wow, that's crazy. Thanks for outlining that whole process. That was really cool to to just listen to and hear. Um, So going into like Kickstarter over there, how did you decide like to 
hey, I'm going to launch a Kickstarter and I'd love to hear like your approach to be able to raise like over two and a half million dollars. Yeah. So when I started initially, I wanted to sell like $20,000 a product. That was about as much product as I could fit in a shipping container. So I wanted to sell like a single shipping container on Shopify. And I was pretty sure I could do that if I got like an email list around like two or 3,000 people, right? You know, what's funny is like we just crossed 100,000 people on our email list. So I think I've like overshot that at this point. Yeah, so that was back in September. Basically, what I did was I created this knowing how hot this type of product was, this like kids play furniture, kids foam products, especially with parents being trapped in the house because of the pandemic. I made like a system where we kind of gamified the sharing of the product. So I used a program called Kickoff Labs. I created a landing page. The landing page led you to a special link. The special link gave you a leaderboard that said, hey, if you share this special link, you climb the leaderboard, you have the potential to win free product, right? And so mostly it was mothers sharing it and mothers share in these private Facebook groups that talk about kids' toys. And there's endless private Facebook groups that talk about kids' toys. So by creating this shareable link and by going to these mothers and marketing to them on Facebook with targeted advertisements, they would find my product, go to my landing page, sign up, take my special share link and share it to try and win free product. They're very used to giveaways from Instagram and everything like that. So they would go to other Facebook groups. And then after they shared and everything, I would get them in my own special Facebook group just about my product. So where I could create my own community, right? Because I knew that I wanted to create a community. I knew I wanted to own my own channels. And so I knew I wanted their email and I knew I wanted them in a private Facebook group. And so like by creating this like whole little marketing funnel and keeping them all kind of in my sphere, I was able to basically over the course of a few months get about 80,000 email addresses for under $3,000 on advertising. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but what I'm kind of getting at is that once I kind of saw the traction that I was getting online, I realized that maybe the press and the organic from Kickstarter could benefit me because I thought I would top out at some point. So instead of going to Shopify and potentially launching the product and just selling that $20,000, I thought maybe the actual like virality of Kickstarter, it's kind of like a cool thing to launch a big Kickstarter and make millions of dollars on Kickstarter. You know, not a lot of people do that. And so I moved over to thinking about Kickstarter in the fall of 2020 or winter because I was like, I was getting traction. And so I really thought that that could be somewhere where I could get a lot of press and things like that. What part about the whole funnel you think was the most powerful to creating that fly rule? Because I remember kickoff labs like years ago. I think when I, you know, I read an article from Tim Ferriss years ago and I tried it with a product probably like six years ago. It did not go anywhere. And it's not because you have kickoff labs. There's something else there such as, you know, do you think the most powerful aspect of the flywheel effect was the attention you put your copy in the landing page, you know, the confirmation page is important. Is it that you were actually going to your true core audience? Because if the audience isn't super embedded into the product and motivated by it, the kickoff labs isn't going to run that engine. Yeah, that's a great question. And and Tim Ferriss is like that origin. I think the case study is like the Harry's case study mm -hmm. where Harry's launched on kickoff labs. Yeah. And that's like a famous article in the kind of like crowdfunding and lead gen space. You know, Tim Ferriss has two big articles, one on crowdfunding and one on like that kind of lead gen. Yeah. And that was like absolutely 100% inspiration for this. And of course, like this will not work for every product. 
I think the product has a built-in virality or a built-in shareability because of its uniqueness. That's both its good thing and its bad thing. I think it has a limited potential kind of in the market because it is a magnetic pillow for it at a high price point that only certain people can afford. Not only that, but people in New York City aren't going to be buying this in droves because it's huge, right? You know, you don't want to fill your apartment with something, these big foam blocks. So I think part of it was market timing. The market was hot for this product, this product and products like it. The market leader being called the Nugget. And the Nugget is now like a Supreme or Air Jordans for moms. You know, it's like impossible to get. People wait in lines for them. They upsell them, you know, 200% on Facebook and eBay. And it's also COVID. The pandemic lent a lot to parents basically spending any amount of money to entertain their children inside their houses, you know. And same with me. I mean, I'm sitting here with a baby underneath my feet because I, you know, quite literally because like I have to work and like watch my kids and all these things. So like any sort of entertainment that you can have. And then the last part, I think, is the simplicity of winning something free. I think, you know, especially in the mom community, it's such a strong and tight community. There's actually a real benefit we've found. It's almost like a contentiousness to it because the parents haven't actually seen the product in person yet. And magnets are kind of a mysterious thing. The giveaway creates this ability to communicate about it. And especially for the moms, they're very much so communicative. There's a lot of like safety things. And all of that kind of mystery actually lent itself to kind of the power of the product launch. For sure. And it's really incredible how you were able to create that viral process. So I was going to actually ask, you know, someone who you mentioned that you've thought about different e-commerce businesses and things like that. Do you think for the listeners out there, do you think that it's possible to create virality for any product in terms of like, there's some aspect of every product that can be viral? Or do you think that it really depends on the market and the product itself? That's a really good and hard question because I still don't even think I consider my own product viral. I think as of February 5th, 2021, when I think of viral now, I think of like a mostly it starts out like as a meme on TikTok or Reddit and then like moves to Twitter and Instagram and then like ends and dies at Facebook. Like that's what I see as the viral pattern in 2021. You know, I went viral on like a very small, I've been joking with my wife is like my product is famous in a very small corner of the internet and like just like the mom Facebook group internet. You know, I have saturated that market. I think it is possible to get traction, certainly with giveaways still. I think it's possible to get traction with the right copy and value prop put around a product that has some sort of shareable or some sort of uh, incentive for sharing. I do think that's possible. I don't think every product grows viral because there's really kind of two components to that. The first one is like the product itself is viral. And the second one is the creator or the person who uses it is viral. For me, Magnetic Pillow Fort is really unique. It has a unique look. It has a unique thing. You know, the, the things stick together until you shake them hard enough, they fall apart. But the other way this could have worked, right, is if it was less interesting, maybe it didn't have magnets, but I was some, you know, bizarre guy in an outfit with makeup on on TikTok doing a dance and like (laughs) it goes viral that way, right? Yeah. And that could be another way that I could have raised $2.6 million, right? So that's kind of how what I think about that. That was plan B. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, I'm not above it at this point. You know, we got to make some money somehow. (laughs) Keep that Kickstarter campaign going. I want to talk about your advertising too. So, you know, you had mentioned earlier that 
you spent about only $3,000 on advertising and part of it being Facebook ads. How do you think about Facebook advertising? Were you in the mindset of like, I'm willing to spend more to get sales and increase like my Kickstarter? Or was it like, I'm going to try and spend as little as possible? Like, did you even hit budget over there? Or were you just in the mindset that I've gotten the organic thing down so well that I don't even want to spend that much on advertising? Yeah. So, I mean, this is crazy. And in D2C, I don't know if people will believe me. And I've gotten people who have said like, this truly cannot be true. But I could have spent less than $3,000. And the reason was, was that virality. What I did by spending that $3,000 basically was that I kept the flywheel moving, as you mentioned. And what it did was it opened up as I created better Facebook audiences, as I got more email addresses, I was able to find new people on Facebook who would really like my product and sign up to my email list because I knew that that my corner of the internet was getting saturated quickly. And so I was running Facebook ads mostly as like a test. I didn't have a big budget for those pre-launch. My goal going into the Kickstarter, once I kind of like knew I was going to have a Kickstarter, I said, I want to do 8,000 email addresses because my funding goal was 25,000. And there's this thing called Kickstarter math that I heard about from a few people on podcasts. Basically, you take your funding goal and you figure out how many email addresses you need to get based on around a 3% conversion rate on your email list. So if I take like, you know, I'm not going to do the math in my head because that's a little bit too much for at this point right now. But basically, I figured out that I needed around 8,000 email addresses based on around a 3 to 4% conversion rate on my email list. And that would give me like the two or 300 backers I needed to fully fund at $25,000. And so I knew if I needed around 8,000 email addresses, I would probably need around $10,000 to get that. Maybe on good days, you know, a dollar or less a lead on Facebook. And I just got lucky that I had a few big hits and I got to 10,000 email addresses within about 60 days. That's incredible. Mic drop right there on the last piece. Are you interested in DTC and e-commerce content? Join Trend's exclusive community for everything DTC, the DTCers community. We're talking marketing, product, growth, and more. All about DTC. Go to trend.io slash podcast. That's T-R-E-N-D dot io slash podcast and look for the discord community link to claim your invite we hope to see you on there so talking about kickstarter i'd love to hear like when did you kick off the campaign and when was like that tipping point was it like a constant just upstream like just continuing to make the u-shape or was there like a hockey stick moment where you kind of just like you know you're going pretty well and then one day you just wake up and you got an extra like 100 or 200k in the kickstarter So without exaggeration and bragging, it was a rocket ship. It was a straight trajectory upwards. There was no hockey stick before. And that was because I had such a strong email list and I had so much community built around my product. So when we pressed launch, I had 500,000 within an hour. I had 2 million within like five hours and I hit 2.2 million before I went to bed. So within 10 minutes, I did most of my funding. Because I was sending out to 80,000 people that I had nurtured, I had gotten to know personally, I had put them in these Facebook groups and worked with them and answered their questions. I mean, that is the power of what happens if you can generate a strong list and you can educate your customers really, really well. I mean, I had people 
waiting and, you know, chomping at the bit to get and order this thing. So, you know, what the irony is that it's like a backwards hockey stick. So right now, like growth is super slow because we're doing paid. It almost would have been better if it was the other way around because I didn't make a ton of money the first day just because of profit margins and you're offering such a deep discount. Um, It was like, it was truly amazing, you know, to watch the numbers go over, you know, I thought I would do maybe 750,000 based on my email list or maybe almost a million. And we, you know, more than doubled that in 10 or 12 hours. That's pretty crazy. I'd love to dig into your nurturing process a little bit as well. So when you collected these emails, like what was the strategy there? Like in terms of even your website, like, did you have it just like set up as like pre-order? And then what was that nurturing process like? Like, did you talk to any of these people that were in the Facebook group individually? Or was it more of like a one to many kind of thing? I'd love to hear you break down that. Yeah, so I got them into the email list, basically with the simple like value props, like saves your couch cushions from being thrown on the floor, right? You know, like every parent is trying to keep their couch cushions off the floor because your kids are throwing them on. Also, magnets make it easy. So when you're building something, it doesn't fall over and they're wipeable, super easy to clean off. You can spray ketchup on them and they stay clean. And so that was kind of what got people in the door, that in a fun picture. And once I got them in, I would say, hey, do you have questions? Like I will personally answer your questions. Come to my Facebook group. And so I would do everything in my power to get them to come to my Facebook group. And I would be there personally. It was a little bit one-to-many and one-to-one because I had full control of the Facebook group. I could approve posts just based on kind of the needs that I saw of the day. You know, someone's like, hey, I'm concerned about magnet safety. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to approve a post for that day. We're going to talk about it. And then I'll make a video about magnet safety and I'll post it on the wall in the Facebook group. And you can see me, you can talk with me. I'll answer your comments. And so it was a really personal touch from the beginning. And it was so much work, in fact, that I actually had to hire someone who was my best friend from college, who is a former Apple employee. And he was like a customer service maven. And I was like, dude, I literally can't answer all these Facebook comments anymore. Once we got over like 10 or 15,000 Facebook members, it was just too much work for me. Yeah. So the nurturing of the community really happened in that group. Our email list, only 10 or 15% of them were in that Facebook group. So I still had a ton of education to do. And so what that would teach me was the Facebook group would kind of show me what the concerns of the most vocal people were. I think of them as like the vocal minority, even though they're the loudest voices, usually the Facebook group, they usually represent like the most kind of paranoid or fear of the kind of full email list. And I would take kind of what I saw like, okay, people are really concerned about magnet safety here. I'm guessing there's probably like five or 10,000 people on my email list. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make a YouTube video. I'm going to write something up in a nice email. I'm going to teach everybody about it now. I'm going to send it out to the full email list so everyone knows and, you know, remind them like, hey, you know, whatever, everything's okay. Here's when we're launching. And so that was kind of my community education plan. Yeah, that, that that's awesome. And it's really just the basics of marketing, right? So you, you kind of went back and I'm sure probably some of your background helped too in, in teaching you that those basics of marketing that you implemented over there, listen to your customers, take take what they're saying, put it into the copy and all that stuff, right? It's so simple. The copywriters will tell you all the time. They do write the copy for you. They literally wrote my FAQ. At one point I said, hey, what do I need to put in the FAQ? And they were just like, hey, you forgot this. And so, I mean, it works. 
That's awesome. That's incredible. Um, so I want to talk about, you know, some of the things that Fort stands for as well. You know, on your Kickstarter page, you talk about things about the environment, like your recycling program and using sustainable materials. Do you think that played a part as well in terms of the value prop, not only the fun part, but just also the social cause piece? Was that really helpful in, in driving your Kickstarter? You know, I thought it would be bigger. Um, it's something that I personally care about. And it's something that we kind of have to keep working on. Unfortunately, because foam is really difficult, you know, it's such a landfill filler. So, I mean, we're exploring all these options, but I can get into that after I talk about if that played into it. I find that the many modern American parents and mothers specifically, it's basically their baseline to be like, you know, no toxic chemicals. You know, it needs to be green. You know, foam tends to have this off-put, they call it VOCs, volatile organic compounds that, that kind of come from the foam. And so you basically have to check all those boxes immediately. Otherwise, the market is just not going to take your product. So it kind of was a weird thing where they they expected it from me. And if they didn't have it, they weren't going to buy it. And so it was less of like a cause and more of like a market need. It just had to happen. Almost like, well, you have to sell a gray because a gray is neutral and people need a gray neutral. And that was totally new to me. You know, I, of course, wanted to get the best materials, but I didn't realize like how used to that the people were and how much they needed that to even walk in the door. And I don't blame them. You know, I have kids and I want to take care of my kids. But I think moving forward, our kind of environmental commitments are hopefully going to be a bigger part of our mission and value. It's something that I, while I'm writing the mission and value, it's like it's actually one of our points that I'm working on. Specifically, you know, I, I want to be carbon neutral. It's a lot easier these days than, than it used to be. And I want to figure out how to healthily recycle these products, especially magnets and foam. I mean, it's not the most sustainable product just by its nature. And I really think that we can figure out a good way to do it. And I think the model that I'm most interested in is kind of what Patagonia has pioneered, which is like basically upselling or recycling their own products. So I'm really, really interested in, in finding a way to patch and repair and also take back product from people and fix it or resell it or something like that. And, you know, foam and fabric and magnets have a light, well, magnets not so much, but have like a life cycle. So, so finding the end of that life cycle and figuring out how to work with the customer to do that is going to be something we're going to be very focused on. So, yeah. I actually, uh, since you mentioned Patagonia and how they recycle their products and stuff, I actually read the book from the founder of Patagonia and it's crazy how they have that mastered down. I mean, they started that even before it was a need from consumers. Uh, they do a really good job of that. Yeah. And it's something that, you know, even though people make fun of it, call it Patagucci and it's like for rich white people and, you know, it is they've stayed true to that core from the owner the whole time, you know, even even though it may have this they like that. That's for real. And I actually have sent in old Patagonia either to sell or to like have patched and stuff. And also they run one percent for the planet, which is a nonprofit that I'm seeking admittance to. And you do have to have a certain like revenue numbers. And I think we're going to be able to hit that and things like that. So that's super exciting because I do want to be a part of those programs totally, completely because I'm inspired by Patagonia. I mean, I will admit. Yeah, they're an awesome company to aspire to reach, and I'm sure you'll get there on the trajectory you're on. So I want to ask you, you know, as we're coming towards the end of the podcast over here, I, I know you've covered a lot of great stuff, but to wrap it up, I'd love to ask, you know, what advice would you give to founders that are also looking to launch a product? Um, if you had to give like three quick things. 
Yeah. So is your audience, we're talking mostly product direct to consumer. Is that right? You guys aren't doing like SaaS or anything like that mostly? No. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Direct to consumer. Direct to consumer. Cool. Well, that's great because that's all I know at this point. Well, don't make a magnetic pillow for is my first piece of advice because it's a pain in the butt. And I think the interesting thing that I've taken into this and I can tell you guys probably have as well is like for better or worse, I took kind of like a high growth bootstrapped tech startup mindset to this. You know, I took the MVP's philosophy, minimum viable product. I said, what is the best product that I can get out into the market as fast as possible to figure out if they want and need this. And that was super valuable. And ultimately, it did take me, you know, I kind of go back and forth on whether or not I got it out fast or slowly. But I think there's something to that, getting the product out there, getting it sourced really quickly. So the best advice what I would get is outsource the things that you're not good at, like immediately get a product designer that's better than you. It's going to be worth the like few grand you pay to get the product designed. Do it as quickly as possible and find a factory that makes something just very similar to that product and have them manufacture that as fast as possible and then get that product validated by the market as fast as possible. And, you know, Kickstarter is a great way to validate a product, putting up a Shopify page and running ads. I think you can do this for under $5,000 these days, which I recognize not a lot of people have, but you can make a product and put it out in a relatively short amount of time if you're willing to learn and research. And so... It's do those like three things, you know, make it, source it and put it out and get it validated. And on top of that, like use all the free resources at your disposal to make that happen. For me, it was podcasts. It was books. It was a ton of online research. All of those resources I got for free. I had no idea how to do e-commerce. I had never really run a Facebook ad. Grant you, I come from like a marketing background, so I have an understanding of how people think and how to make content. But you know, I had never sourced a product, you know, from China and India. So it's just all those things. You can do it. It's not as hard as you think it is. That's great advice over there. And one other thing I, we always like to learn, especially our audience as well, is what are a couple of the challenges that you faced maybe that you think you might have done differently or you kind of learned from moving forward? Raise too much money too fast on Kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, one of those would be charge more on the first day of Kickstarter, <laughs> you know, so you can have a higher bottom line. But that's not how Kickstarter works. You got to take the discount. So biggest challenges for me would be I didn't even realize how much I needed to listen to my customer. Once I found them, once I had them in a Facebook group, just listen to your customer. Just listen to them. And you can take it with a grain of salt. Some customers have a little more emphasis on things. But listen to your customer. Take that in. Think about that and decide what to do. I definitely, that was something that I failed at at times, not listening to my customer enough. And then the other one was, yeah, gosh, you guys understand this. There's just so many things you mess up as. It never hurts to be prepared, honestly. I really tried every day to ask myself, what was I missing? And I was blinded by the fact that my email list was so big. And now I'm, it's biting me because my paid acquisition is going really slowly. We've had a bunch of challenges with Facebook. And I wasn't prepared enough for the 29 days following my campaign. And so I just think that level of preparation is never going to hurt. I try to ask myself every day, what am I not seeing? What am I missing? You know, what am I missing that's going to come get me? So... I think if you kind of start there, it, so it doesn't hurt to be a little bit paranoid at times, and that can be helpful ultimately. Awesome. Well, that's great advice over there. 
And so the last thing that I have to ask over here, um, and actually I want to turn the mic over to you to share some information as well as like, you know, what's next for Fort. And also if you want to take the chance to, to tell people where they can learn more about Fort and connect with the product, connect with you, all of that good stuff. Awesome. Yeah. You can find us at getthefort.com, G-E-T-T-H-E, fort, F-O-R-T.com. And find me on Twitter is the best way you're going to get connected with me. I've been tweeting a bunch about e-com and building the company. If you want to hear a little bit about that from the business side, Connor B. Lewis, um, C-O-N-O-R, Connor with one N, B-L-E-W-I-S. And it's at Connor B. Lewis. And yeah, I mean, for Fort, I mean, honestly, I think I want to do like $10 million in sales this year. You know, I want to grow the most random product in America, try and go straight through the roof and build a really... You know, I think this company is probably going to top out at some point, like I mentioned earlier, but I think there's a lot of growth until then. So I'm just going to keep trying and may betray DTC at some point and sell on the floor in retail. Sorry, guys, but, <laughs> you know, we'll see. I think I'd like to try all the avenues and just see where I can take this thing. Well, we'll definitely be watching closely to see how work grows. Connor, it was so great having you on the podcast. Uh, really appreciated you breaking down and really just diving into your whole entire strategy, which was super helpful. So thank you for joining us. Hopefully everyone in the audience enjoyed this episode. And if you did, feel free to drop us a quick rating and subscribe to the podcast. We'll see you next time on the DTC pod.